This is Holding Court with Patrick McEnroe. Now, here's Patrick McEnroe. All right, time for State of the Union Part 2. Of course, uh, a lot going on in the tennis world, and I decided this week to bring in someone I respect uh, greatly who's been around not just the tennis world but the sports world as a journalist for many, many years with the Daily News, the New York Daily News, the sports reporters, ESPN. Uh, I think I initially met Jane McManus when she worked uh, at the paper in Westchester here when she was covering the U.S. Open, but now she's the director of the Center for Sports Communication at Marist College up here in Westchester County, New York as well. She is the proud wife of a very solid tennis player himself and her husband and the proud mom of two beautiful children. And she lives close to me here in Westchester County, Jane McManus. Jane, I figured you were someone with your background, not only in tennis, but in sports journalism in general, that could put this whole situation we've seen unravel, maybe call it, in the last week or so in the professional tennis world. How are you? I, I, Patrick, I'm great, and I would love to try to help you do that. It is such an interesting <laughs> week for tennis and for uh, maybe hubris even. Mm. That it's uh, certainly something to unpack. You know, I, 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 when I first saw this, this, these matches that were going on in, in the Balkans, starting in Serbia where Djokovic is from, uh, obviously the situation that um, happened this weekend, they were in Croatia, a couple-hour drive away. But when I watched it initially, Jane, a couple of weeks ago, I remember coming back from actually teaching some tennis lessons as I've been doing in the last month or so since tennis reopened as a recreational sport, which, by the way, it's the perfect sport for, for that to happen. I turned on my yeah. TV, I watched some highlights, and, or I watched a replay on Tennis Channel. I said, well, it looks, looks to me like a normal old tennis event you know, that you turn on on TV. Tons of people, about four or 5,000 people, packed stadium, ball kids, lines people, umpire, players ch- uh, shaking hands, uh, no one wearing masks. So what a change. I sort of put that out there tongue-in-cheek, and then look what's happened. Absolutely. And, you know, there's been so much tennis on the Tennis Channel and that has been, you know, matches of old, right? Let's replay this game from, you know, you know, 2010 or whatever, that I, when I saw the pictures come across the transom, I thought, oh, this is another one of those, you know, revisiting interesting matches from the past as opposed to something that was taking place kind of in the world that we all live in now, which feels strange and silted. And um, and particularly that that handshake or, or with, the, um, with the chair umpire, mm-hmm. um, where I was like, oh my gosh, that's actually happening now. And it's just, you know, it's so instinctive to not do that now. And it feels awkward because you're noticing every single time that you're not shaking someone's hand, you're not embracing them, you're not hugging them when you meet them. Um, that it just was the casual nature of it. Just it almost seemed jarring to me when I saw it happening. Now, the, now the situation obviously is a lot different in Serbia as we're, we're hearing, you know, the numbers for the virus are extremely low in that country. So you know, they assumed, I guess, that they had this thing under control. Maybe they still do. But as I said from the start of this whole thing, Jane, I know you've been following the other sports. You covered the NFL for many, many years through your 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 journalism career, you know, and the issues with, with football and basketball coming back, college football in the spring. Do the kids go back to college? Obviously, from a standpoint of transmitting the virus, it's a lot easier in those sports. Tennis, as I suggested, are much easier from just a standpoint of playing the game. But the problem for tennis 
or the challenge for tennis is that unlike the professional leagues in our country or in any country, as we're seeing them reopen you know, soccer in European countries, et cetera, is you've got players coming literally from all over the globe. And that poses a whole host of additional issues and logistical problems when you talk about getting the professional tour back in business. Yeah. It, you know, a number of people have said to me, why not tennis? Why aren't we seeing tennis for those very reasons? And and, I, and I, there are a lot of different organizations, right, that have a hand in tennis. First mm-hmm. of all, you have the ATP and the WTA and the USTA and any host of different, even even the tournaments are, are smaller and independently run in some places. And it's, it's, you know, you've got so many hands that are kind of in it, but you're right. And, you know, ten, tennis and sports are the result of a functioning society because you need the planes to run. You need to be able to get people from the airport to the hotels. You need the hotels to be safe. You need to be able to feed people Mm -hmm. like all of these things you need to be able to have people who can afford to work in whatever venue that you have put together you need people who are safe traveling who are healthy who have a healthcare system that can work for them in case they do become ill like there are all of these things that underpin successful sports in any country and those conditions are not being met in a lot of places right now so just the basic underpinning of a healthy sports ecosystem is not there at the moment and so we're trying to kind of overlay sports and professional sports on top of this kind of, you know, shaky, wobbly foundation. Um, and we're finding that in a lot of places, it's just not working. And I think, you know, with tennis, obviously, uh, what happened with, with the tour last weekend is stark in how irresponsible some of those players were behaving. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it would be safe in places where the virus is much lower or where, you know, where societies are, are much more functional and the public health systems are much more functional. We're just in a place right now where even like tennis, it, it just becomes very stark because so much has to go right to be able to get people from one place to another. And I, and I think of the story coming out today, which is that the, the EU might bar, mm. you know, American citizens from, from traveling this summer because there's so much virus in the wild in the United States. And just, you know, what does even that mean in terms of, of, you know, sports aside, what does that mean? Kind of a telling uh, announcement, wasn't that? When the EU announced, those of you who haven't heard that, announced that uh, they may not allow U.S. citizens into uh, the European countries. And the European Union, they've, they've, they've not only flattened the curve, the curve has gone way down. And then you look at the difference between what's happened in this country, um, you know, that is basically rising in certain parts of the country. Obviously, here where we are, Jane, in the New York area, it's gone down a lot. But that's because uh, I think people here, we, we all got got uh, pretty shocked, you know, with how quickly this thing overtook us. And here in Westchester, where it started, then obviously in the city, where it really got rampant and out of control. So, But you bring up an, an unbelievably good point about all the, all, all the things underneath that need to work well. You know, so we, we, you know, whether it's sports, whether it's entertainment, you know, all those things that have to happen in society for sports to flourish and to, to continue to do that. So, you know, let's go to the, to the U.S. Open situation, because I think, Jane, you know, I worked for the USTA for many years and now I'm, I'm distanced from what they do. So I'm really just giving my opinion of seeing the way they handle it. I think they've gone they went about it pretty diligently as far as looking at how the U.S. Open could happen and going through the proper parameters with the government and the health officials, et cetera. So on, on, on the back end of that, we've got this situation happening in, in Serbia. And the first thing a lot of people said to me, Jane, is, oh, does this put the U.S. Open in jeopardy? What do you think about that? 
I don't know that this necessarily puts the U.S. Open in any more jeopardy than it would have been in any other situation. Uh, and the fact of the matter is that even though New York has mitigated the virus uh, relative to other states in America right now, we're still looking at 500 cases a day, which is is a lot, especially compared to Europe. And um, and also you have to think, you know, the USTA, Florida, the coaches, a lot of coaches are coming from all over the country um, and all over the world. And, and I think you have to wonder whether or not this means that some players would be less inclined to travel generally. Um, and I think that that would be the big thing. I, you know, I think of Rafael Nadal, who would be coming from a country that was devastated, Spain, mm. by its own outbreak and has mitigated uh, the coronavirus to, you know, to the best extent that it could, which I think we're all starting to realize is never going to be zero, but is, is at least a place where I think you could feel somewhat, uh, you know, more secure that you wouldn't pick it up uh, if you're trying to be careful. Um, but at the same time, so asking him to leave with a coach, to leave his family, so you'd have to get the quarantine for a couple weeks beforehand, and then maybe maybe two weeks, maybe three weeks in the United States. You have most players that would be staying in hotels, transported daily to the venue, even with um, fewer people involved and with no fans and with heavy mitigation efforts um, and, you know, masks and, and cleaning and all of these types of things. It's still an operation that would have to be large enough that I think that the opportunity for someone to spread the virus should they have it would be, would be unfortunately, it's not zero. And so I think that, you know, all of these, of this whole calculus, um, you know, this population of tennis players is now going to be pretty sensitized to the idea that you can't just wish it away, mm -hmm. that you can't just say life is normal. I'm going to go. And if I get it, I get it. Um, I mean, I think we have to see, unfortunately, we have to see the players who have tested positive as a result of this. How bad is their illness? Does everyone emerge from this un unscathed? And maybe that'll have some effect on it too. If someone gets very sick or has a difficult time coming back to tennis after that, um, you know, does that then become a factor in, in, in how people look at it? I, it just, the fact of the matter is things are not normal. Pretending that they're normal um, or that you can have an event that, that, that I just don't think we know enough now to say that you could have an event like that and feel good about it. Yeah, you, you, you brought up another point that I want to get at too, Jane, which is, you know, I, I thought initially when this whole thing began, from, and this is from just a, the, the, the insider tennis perspective, that this might be an opportunity for all those governing bodies to start to realize, hey, you know, we've got to work together more. You talk about the individual tournaments. You talk about, obviously, the majors, which essentially operate on their own. The men's tour, the ATP, the WTA, which is a women's tour. There was talk, remember, two months ago about the men's and women's tour joining up. I happen to think that would be a good idea. That seems to have died down, at least as far as being discussed um, in the public. Maybe they're just discussing it behind the scenes. But you've covered so many different sports. You know the ins, ins and outs of tennis. Is this an opportunity that the tennis uh, jurisdiction, so to speak, is letting slip slip away? You know that they, they maybe are not finding a way to get these these entities to come together a little bit more. The USDA does say you know they took every step necessary, and 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 I think they did as far as working with the other organizations. But actually coming together is proving, I think, to be a lot more difficult. 
Yeah, I, I see that. I see that exactly. And I think it's because, you know, when you look at what other leagues like the NBA and the WNBA and the National Women's Soccer League and Major League Soccer, the way that they are putting together uh, successful events or thinking about how to put together successful events is, uh, is, is, is making them small, is shrinking everything down, shrinking down the number of teams, shrinking down the, you know, the number of venues, shrinking down fans, making things smaller. And the, the beauty of tennis, I think, has been in how expansive it is geographically and how expansive it is in terms of numbers of players um, that you can find at different tournaments at, at Grand Slams and the number of, of fans that it's able to reach with, you know, with two week majors. And so the, the concept then, because you don't have a single organizing body, the, the whole idea of shrinking means that people would be, that certain organizations would simply be frozen out. And so who is going to give up their fiefdom in order to make these sorts of things happen in a responsible way? We, I think we've seen that individual players may not have the discipline and the, the foresight mm. to be able to really create a small contained event that would be safe, uh, but also, you know, bring some interest in viewers to the sport during this time. So in order to do that, you would need, you know, some grown-ups to come in and put this thing together, but only a few. So which are the mm. organizing bodies that aren't going to be, you know, the, you know, all of these different, um, someone's going to have to give up some power right? and who would be willing to do that. And that, I think that's why you find that some people just are like, well, if I'm not going to be involved, then that's not a discussion I want to have. Yeah. And let's be honest. Tennis has always relied on the, on the power of the superstar, right? The individual, the great players, those are the players that move the needle, that get the sponsorship that, you know, that push the, t- the, the TV ratings when they're, when they're in the championship matches. So in a way, you know, again, I, I, since I moved into the broadcasting world and I stepped away from being a player, Jane, years ago, you know, the more I, I sort of saw the game from outside the perspective of, the, of a player, the more I began to realize, wow, these, the players really have even more power. And I'm not sure that's mm. such a good thing all the time because, you know, they get catered to, the, you know, the top, top players take advantage of the situation because it's so easy for them to do it. And I'm not even saying they do it with, with, with malice, you know, with intention, with the, that, that sort of intent. But it's just the nature of the beast. And so when Nadal, you know, or Federer or Serena says something, it's like, oh, my goodness, you know, this is the way tennis is going. And, you know, sometimes I, I wish that there were someone or some entity that had more of an authoritative figurehead to it. I shouldn't say that considering where we are in this country, right in this moment, but you know what I mean? So, you know, someone where, you know, a really strong um, leader like the NBA has, obviously Goodell's had his issues in in the NFL, but someone where, you know, so the buck stops with them. And the, and the problem Mm -hmm. with tennis to me now watching it from the outside and being a broadcaster, obviously still making my living in the game is, is it seems it's even more and more that, that the top players, you know, sort of assess or control the, the, the what happens or at least mm-hmm. have t- way more power than they should. Yeah. And I, I look though at what would be in this environment, the advantage for, let, you know, let's talk about the three people that you just brought up. I think who probably are, um, have, have the most name recognition, you know, Roger and Rafa and Serena. And I think to myself, what would be the advantage of them playing right now? 
Mm-hmm. Is there is there a, an event that could be put together that would have enough money to draw them? And it would have to be, I think, a major type um, event. Otherwise, though, you think, you know, Serena has, you know, a daughter and a family that she is very engaged in right now. Does it make sense for her to leave that? Um, what would be the calculus that would draw her out of that? Same with, with you know, with Federer, he's got four children now, you know, they're both later in their career. They're all later in their career. They have more money than they can spend for a long time unless they, they get really <laughs> reckless. Right. And, you know, and they also, they have, you know, they've put together uh, resumes that are for the ages. You know, they're, they're in the Hall of Fame. They're, they, you know, they're always going to be talked about in discussions about who's the greatest player ever. And, and it's just, what would be the advantage for them to come out now at such a precarious time and play? And is that where their energies are going to be? And I mean, I think you could honestly, and you probably have had discussions about, uh, you know, what this means for, for Serena and for Roger when it comes to, you know, their, their, their career titles and whether or not they, you know, Serena is able to break the Margaret Court's, um, you know, record right. for Grand Slam single titles and all of these types of things. But I, and, but I don't know that getting her major that does that during the coronavirus era when so many players are going to be here is going to mean the same sort of thing. I mean, this, this year is going to have an asterisk next to it for all of these players, no mm-hmm. matter what. And so, so I kind of, you know, even though I think, yes, they, if they combine together and put something together and, and said we want to do, you know, a tournament in France or, or some other country or where it's been fairly effectively mitigated, um, I, you know, but what would be, what is, is there enough of an incentive for them to really do that right now? Well, I think, I, and, I mean, yeah, I, I think there is if, if it's safe and it's, uh, you know, the precautions are taken and they feel comfortable. Because at the end of the day, I, I, I agree and disagree with you on this one, Jane. I think, of course, there's going to be an asterisk this year in, in any sport that gets back to being played. You know, you're hearing about baseball, yeah. 50 game schedule, whatever it is. What a joke. Whether the NBA, they go straight to the playoffs or the NHL. I mean, but I think that still, it still will be a major. You know, and so when you look at those players, um, they're all going. Obviously, Rogers already announced that he's not going to be able to play the rest of this year because of injury. Right. But if you right. look at Djokovic and, and Nadal, you know, both closing in on Rogers' number, and obviously Serena. I mean, look, I think if if all if it's all looks like they can stay healthy, I mean, as I said, as I said all week, you know, nothing, no, nothing is. F- foolproof when it comes to this but let's not be foolish which is what Djokovic and the the people running the event were in Serbia right but still uh you know this is what they do it is what they do um they're not forced to do it in the way that team athletes are and team sports are I guess they could pull out if they wanted to too um they have so much money but I still think that for them they want to play they want to compete so you know I, you know, the, there is going to be a big, big tournament in France, by the way. It's called the French Open, which they're planning on having <laughs> with with fans. You know, September 27th. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, you know, obviously, as you said, Europe in general has done a much better job um, controlling this thing. So it looks like, you know, they're on track to, to have that tournament. So I guess I think that if, you know, if if they feel comfortable – these players, what any players that are out there, they feel comfortable with the medical side and the health side, they should play. If they don't, then obviously that's their decision to make. But if they're not going to play because they can't bring their normal entourage, right, and have you know be able to go back and forth to the city or go out to their favorite restaurant, to me that's not um, an excuse I'm, I'm, I'm looking to hear as a tennis no, player. No, 
A hundred percent. And it is, it is like ironic that Djokovic was the player who was saying uh, that he was perhaps not going to come to the open because he couldn't, couldn't bring his entourage, um, right. which, right. And now that, and now how, how does that look in light of everything that's happened? It looks, it looks ridiculous that he, that, that was his reasoning on that. That is, you know, but I will say also that the, the issue with these, with the tournaments and with the NBA and all of these events that are planning is, you know, I, I think about Mike Tyson's famous line that, you know, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. <laughs> right. Good point. Yep. And it's, it's great to plan these things and to talk, you know, baseball can talk money until the cows come home. And obviously that's what they're doing instead of playing games. But, uh, you know, once you actually have to go to a venue and reckon with whether or not this person's wearing a mask and when was that last cleaned and did I touch a ball that they touched, that is an entirely different thing. Mm-hmm. And once you actually have to do that and who's going to bear the risk of these things and if somebody who's, a, you know, in a, and you're probably not going to have ball boys, but let's just say that, that a locker room attendant um, gets the coronavirus and they're a part-time employee who's paying the health date for that person to, to be tested and to be treated for the coronavirus. There are all of these things I think that are, economic and, and almost ethical or moral considerations that tournaments and leagues will have to um, bring in. And, and the NBA, for example, decided that part of the deal with having this 22-game uh, quote-unquote playoff or season or however you want to refer to it, uh, that part of that was going to be taking out an insurance policy that would guarantee treatment, uh, long-term treatment and an insurance policy for mm. players who might get coronavirus. Mm-hmm. And the, and so it's one thing to, you know, to have your all of your friends come to a tournament uh, in the Adriatic. It's another thing to actually think through all of these different things that you would need and assume that people would be getting uh, coronavirus as a result of this. Because if you're bringing a volume of people, I think, you know, we've seen just from when you look at college football and how many teams have now had outbreaks or Major League Baseball, which had to shut down their training facilities because so many people had outbreaks. Um, or even if you look at what happened during the NBA season with Rudy Gobert um, getting the coronavirus and then and then testing so many different NBA players and finding out that so many had it. This thing's incredibly transmissible and that part of the approach for this has to be a rigorous approach. You almost, you know, you, you want the, you want an epidemiologist, you want an accountant, you want all of these people to be looking at this. And I think at the end of the day, there may be a calculus where you just can't bring something back right mm-hmm. now. Right. And, and that is part of it as well. So, you know, the French open, you know, absolutely should be planning, you know, we're planning on opening colleges uh, this fall as well. And yet there is a possibility that those plans uh, might not come to fruition. Yeah, so much in limbo. And as as usual, over the years that I've gotten to know you, Jane, I, I've, I've become smarter again by talking to you. And uh, I'm very happy that you made the decision to go work at a university and be a lecturer, et cetera, and, and run the sports communication because now you're making a lot more people smarter. And uh, you've always, whether it's been, I was on your show on ESPN Radio, or you were on my show, or you were interviewing me in different uh, areas. But before before I let you go, I want to get just a little bit personal with you because I know you and I know your husband who's a, a teacher himself and works at the local school where my kids go to school. And he's also happens to be the tennis coach there. So give me a little vibe on the McManus marriage as, as, it, <laughs> as it's related to the tennis court, please. Well, uh, I, my first, one of my first stories that I actually ever did was um, when I was a cub reporter 
for the local paper and I was assigned to cover boys tennis and he was the boys tennis coach. Mm. And so I went to go have a conversation with him a couple months later. Uh, I refused to date him until after the season because of course <laughs> right. that would be a conflict of right. interest. Right, right, right. Okay. Uh, but a couple months later I went to my boss and I said, I've got good news and bad news. Um, the the good news is I'm getting married. Uh, mm-hmm. The bad news is I won't I won't be covering boys tennis anymore. <laughs> I can't be doing the boys tennis run anymore. <laughs> that's right. Oh, that's hilarious. That's I never knew but that. He's, oh. Yeah, he's he loves he plays all the time. We joined a club and we moved to the UK for two years in mm-hmm. London. We we joined a club and we played pretty constantly. And when we were first married, we had a court uh, nearby us and and we'd play all the time. And he was much better than I was, but I was much more competitive than mm-hmm. he was. So mm-hmm. we had a lot of clashes. <laughs> Um, but yeah, 20 years this July. So wow. there you have it. Congrats. But yeah. I've, Patrick, I've always enjoyed our conversations. Uh, and you have always taught me a great deal as well. I understand the sport a lot better because of the conversations that we've had over the years. And I want to thank you for that. I, I just respect the hell out of you. Well, I re- appreciate you saying that. I appreciate you coming on. And uh, maybe we'll play a little mixed doubles, little, little husband-wife <laughs> doubles at some point. We'll see how we do. <laughs> Maybe you and me against your husband and my wife. That could be an interesting match. <laughs> that would be great. Let's uh, do it. All right. Sounds good, Jane. Thank you so much. Jane McManus joining me here on Holding Court. Holding Court with Patrick McEnroe is powered by Mudhouse Media. Mudhouse Media.